If you have kids, you probably can relate to this. Uh, by the end of the winter, uh, the children have more than enough sledding under their belt. They've made enough snowballs, they've done enough of fort making, and they've run out of things to do. Once the winter starts receding and the rain starts coming, they start getting more and more antsy. They've been stuck inside. Uh, and then you get a few sunny days like we had the other day. So, uh, Dad, Dad, please bring out our bicycles. So they do. And then you bring out the bicycles and they're all excited. And then what happens? Easter weekend comes when they have a long weekend and rain and thunder and cold. So I thought, you know, uh, these kids are just going to be insufferable. They're, they're bouncing around inside. And so I thought, what can I do to make Easter weekend a little bit easier? Where can I find a place of quiet and meditation that will calm? And I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll take my kids to Cosmic Adventures. Okay? <laughs> so Saturday I go there, and it's, uh, it's filled with kids whose parents have the same distraught look on their face than I did because... They don't know what to do with them, and they throw them all. And if you haven't been there before, it's this giant jungle gym that's inside, and all these kids running around and playing. And the advantage is I don't have to be in there with them, but the disadvantage is I have to be in the same room listening to them all screaming for two hours. So after that, of course, I had a screaming headache, and uh, that's all fine. Um, but I thought, finally, I'm going to be able to get home, and I'm going to be able to relax a little bit. But I wondered, why is it that there was no traffic on the way out, and the traffic's getting really bad on the way in? So it's coming in from from uh, Orleans, and I'm I'm coming through, and I'm I'm going uh, down Leitrim Road, and then the traffic's all backed up, and I realized as I got closer, it's because the traffic light was out. Well, fine, you do four-way stop, you eventually get through, and then you stop again, and another traffic light was out. The problem is the entire trip on the way back, the power had gone out all through Riverside South and through the east end of Ottawa because of the winds and the storm. So what would have been a 25-minute drive ended up being a 45-minute drive. Very, very frustrating. That's one of the things that you realize is that you don't really realize the importance of relying on power until the power is gone. And with your out, when you're without that power, life really changes for the worst. And you realize that as you're going home, you're thinking, how am I going to open up the can of uh, corn that I have? And how am I going to do this? Because I've got no electricity. Well, thankfully, when I got home, we had the power. Uh, it was only on the other side of the river, uh, the Great Unwashed, where Bernie lives, <laughs> who had the problem with, <laughs> with their electricity and their power. But I mention that, though, because it's not just a matter of being frustrated by uh, powerlessness when, the, when you're going and trying to, to get through uh, crosstown traffic. It also is a metaphor, I thought, about how powerless I get to be at the end of Holy Week. If you've traveled with us or paid attention in the, uh, the bulletins and things that I've put out, we have a lot of services. I, like many of my clergy colleagues now, I'm thinking, man, I'm at the end of my rope. We just did Palm Sunday, and then the next day I had a Bible study, and Wednesday we had Compline and prayer. I visited a retirement home to do a service there. I did some home visits. I, uh, on Thursday, uh, had Maundy Thursday and the, and the foot washing. On Good Friday morning, we had a craft day with kids, and 50 kids running around screaming. Certainly didn't help my headache. And then Good Friday in the afternoon, and preaching and reflecting on the cross, and then Easter Vigil last night, a wonderful service that went late into the night, and then this morning. And so I'm reaching the end of my strength and my energy. But you know, what really is the most challenging is not that you lose that physical strength towards the end of Holy Week. It's that you've watched something that has actually been really challenging to watch. You hear the great energy and excitement of Palm Sunday as people wave the branches that Jesus is coming, and Hosanna to the Son of David. We're so excited 
But then day by day you get this steady drumbeat where Jesus, who is lauded and celebrated coming into Jerusalem, more and more people turn against him. It gets closer and closer to the darkness of Good Friday, and what you find is that Jesus, who's hailed as the mighty king, on Good Friday we see finally him nailed to a cross, this powerless victim who is uh, treated as a slave, exposed to shame and to pain and to harm. We look at all of those things and we can't help but think how hard it is to live without power. Here Jesus himself has renounced power and he's allowed himself to run into the hands of people who hate him. And there he is, crucified, and he's reached death and he's buried in the tomb. Those are difficult things to preach on, so I always find Good Friday challenging. I'm grateful Lisa is a member of our parish and as a, as a chaplain she was able to preach for some of the days through Holy Week, but I actually don't find Good Friday the hardest day to preach on. And I think part of the reason is not because it's an easy topic, it's not, but it's actually a topic that I'm safely able to keep at arm's length in many ways. After all, when you look at the crucifixion and the terrible events that happened to Jesus, what we're looking at is something that most of us don't come close to experiencing. I've never seen firsthand such a travesty of justice where an innocent man is condemned to death. I've not seen firsthand, thankfully, a time where a man is flogged and beaten and mocked and had a crown of thorns on his head. I've never had the experience of losing so violently a person that I love. I look at those things and I can say they're terrible, but I'm looking at them from afar. What I find really difficult, frankly, is when I come to Easter morning, because when I look at that, I think those events start coming home a little bit more. One of the most tragic figures I've often found and most difficult to preach on is the figure of Mary Magdalene that we see this morning. Because Mary Magdalene is not executed like Jesus is, she's not flogged like Jesus is, but what do we find? We find in her a woman who has deeply loved someone, and that person has been brutalized, that person has been killed, and now she's got nothing left. Do you know why Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb? Some of the other uh, gospel accounts spell it out more clearly. That when Jesus was crucified and he was buried, he was buried very quickly because Passover was coming and the Jewish people could do no work even anointing a person for burial, giving them the funeral rites that they should have. And so Jesus is sealed into the tomb and the women, soon as dawn is breaking, still when we're told it's still dark, they want to do one last thing for this person that they dearly love to bring the ointments, to give a proper burial to this man, and yet so sad is this scene that they're arguing amongst themselves, how can we possibly even do this because there's a heavy stone in front of the tomb? Here we are wanting to give some last goodbye to this friend, and we can't even do that. We are so powerless, we are so incapable of doing even this simple act of care that we're reliant on some kind stranger who's strong enough to be able to open up that tomb for us to go in and see our friend. Hope has been broken in them. And although I haven't experienced quite the same thing, I think most of us can look at the experience of a woman like Mary Magdalene and say, I kind of feel where you're at. If you have ever been in the room where a person is dying and their last breath is gone, as I often have been called to do in my ministry, you're there, you're waiting with them, you provide them the comfort you can, and then they die, and then you don't know what to do with yourself. There are many things to do that will keep you busy. You wonder, uh, what should I do with this bathrobe? And do I forget anything that i got to take out of this? And how do I make the funeral arrangements? But what you always feel is the sense that you're fiddling around at the margins because the big thing 
is something you have no power over. You've confronted death, and death has taken someone you love, and there's not much you can do about it. I remember very uh, distinctly several years ago when I was freshly ordained, I was a curate, I was the assistant at a church in Cornwall, and I often would do hospital visits just in regular rounds, and I ran across a man uh, there who I knew as a local curmudgeon. And I remember that local curmudgeon uh, very well, and I, I went and visited him a few times, but he was not doing well, and eventually he died. And I can remember very distinctly a conversation I had with the man, uh, and he said, can you get me out of here? I can't stand being here in the hospital. And I said, no, unfortunately I can't. I don't have the power to release you. And then I, this is what I remember. He said, well, then what good are you? <laughs> I thought to myself, yeah, a good question. I can pray good. Maybe I can preach you a sermon. But what was really clear when I entered that room and when I left it was is that I can't do the thing you most want to make you well, to give you life. One of the hardest things I have to do, of course, is preach at funerals. Because I can say comforting things, I can encourage you, but I can't change the fact that the person you love is lying there in a casket and they're not getting up. So why do we look at that? Why do we do that on Easter Sunday and we look at the sad brokenness of a powerless woman? only reminds us of our lack of power, doesn't it? Do you know, I have another story from the time that I was in Cornwall that was a little bit more positive. I not only had to do hospital visits, and it was a privilege to do, but often challenging. I often got calls to do funerals for people that I didn't know. One day I got a call to do a funeral for a woman uh, that I had had actually met before because she had met me at a funeral of a friend, and I didn't remember, and I didn't know her. And so her family explained a little bit about her life. I usually talk with the family, give me a sense of, of who this person is so I can set the right tone. They told me different things about her, but what really I, I remember most was that they told me that she was a war bride. She had asked for an Anglican funeral because she had grown up in the Church of England, and she had grown up in England, but during the Second World War, a Canadian soldier fell in love with her. They got married. Soon afterwards, he got sent to France. He, I'm sure, caused a great deal of worry to her. Will this man I love come back? And he did. But then that pain and sorrow of being parted was once again visited upon her because he had to get on a troop transport and go back to Canada. And I remember distinctly talking to the family about this and saying, man, that was, that was tough. First, she doesn't know whether he's going to come back from war. Then he says, I'm going to this country I've never been to. I'm going to go prepare a place. She doesn't know what it's like. She's only known him for a little while. What if he doesn't come back? You know what the family said is that, well, it must have been tough, but she knew that he really loved her, and if he said, I'm coming back to get you, I will. And he did. You know, I buried that woman on Canadian soil because he came back, and he took her with him, and they went to this country called Canada, and they built a life together. They're clearly a family that loved this woman and loved this man because of the sorrow that they felt at that moment. There was something real there and something that really reminded me about why we celebrate and why we have the courage and confidence to look at a woman like Mary Magdalene when she's broken and powerless. Why we can be reminded of our own powerlessness. It's because in front of the grave and gate of death where all of our power comes to an end, we're not looking inside ourselves asking what can we do to change things. Instead, like that woman so long ago at the end of the Second World War who watches as the man who loves her sails away, we have confidence today because the God who loves us has gone before us to break the power of death on our behalf, something we could not do for ourselves. One of the most powerful lines in the creed that we say, the Apostles' Creed, when we are baptized, is 
that Christ descended into hell. Or sometimes we say Christ descended to the dead. What does it tell us? That Christ went and battled what we cannot battle. He went to the place of the dead and he broke open the gates and said, now you who are condemned to die are free because I have the power to bring you life. Mary Magdalene did not come to that tomb thinking, how wonderful it is this morning that I can go and see the risen Lord. She is told again and again he's risen and she won't believe it. Even when Jesus himself speaks to her until he calls her name and says, Mary, and she realizes that what she had not even dared to hope for was true. This man broke open that stone. He broke open the grave and he crushed death underfoot. Mary had hope that day because she knew that the man who loved her more than his own life and was ready to pour it out on her behalf, had risen. And he said, now I'm going to my father and your father. I'm more than just your master. I am a brother, and you are a sister of a common father who loves you. What's our hope today? Why do we celebrate? Not because God promises that we won't have sorrow. It's not because God promises we won't die. We will. But because we do not need to be afraid of these things when our power comes to an end, because we have a mighty champion whose power is enough. We say Christ is risen because we know that that Christ who rose makes a promise that we will be risen. And that when I preach and that person lies in the casket and there's nothing I can do to change it, I preach with confidence because I know there is someone who does have the power to change that. The person who made her, the person who loved her, and the person who will raise her from the dead. That is the hope they have. That is the hope Mary had. And that is the hope we have. And that is the cause we have for celebration.